The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So as we continue to work with the Paramis in the weeks ahead, um, the important thing is to like it, <laughs> to like doing this work. And if you're not liking doing the work, then you have to experiment. Like maybe you need an, an attitude change, like you've got some sort of cynical approach going or whatever. In a way, you know, early Buddhism is so pragmatic. This, like in other religious spiritual systems, this is a, a lot like calling on the beneficent angels and saints and, you know, where we see a lot of that in other traditions. Um, and it's here in early Buddhism. But these qualities, we don't think of them as either being internal, like part of my personality, or that they exist externally. That idea of internal, external, it's, it's kind of a too limited of a concept to be useful here. But what we know directly, experientially, is there are these wholesome qualities of the heart and mind, right? We see them in other people in moments. We experience them in ourselves in moments. And then once we've done that work where we're just honestly acknowledging there are wholesome, beautiful qualities that we admire in ourselves and in others, it just naturally leads to the question, well, what can I do to cultivate them? <laughs> if they're really good in healing and feel good and make me better able to navigate my life in skillful ways, of course I'm going to be interested in cultivating them. How do they grow? How do they get weaker? Right, Just that pragmatic. So the first step really is just to know that they're there. Just this initial, initi I think uh, Ajahn Sushito in the book that I linked to, he talks about this first step as just being able to initialize, activate, and uh, call on. Like we can call on these 10. And remember, you don't have to get confused by, oh, I got to do all 10. Just choose one or two that for whatever reason you're attracted to. Maybe you feel is already a relative strength in your personality. And then more and more during the day and during your set, call on it. Just remember that the mind, the heart, has this capacity or tendency or potential. And by bringing it to mind, is the initial way we activate it. We kind of bring it into the fore. I don't think I read this last week, but it's uh, in the foreword to Ajahn Suchito's book. This is, uh, it's linked to in the chat, Parami, Ways to Cross the Floods, Ways to Cross Life's Floods. Really good book. And you can get it. Um, it's a free offering from the uh, Thai forest tradition monasteries like Abayagiri in California, one of the Western monasteries in the Ajahn Chah tra tradition. You can just download, you can request a paper copy there, but you can also just download the PDF um, from their website. But the link is in the chat to do that. Um, but uh, uh, the person who wrote the foreword is Kitasaro, who often teaches with his partner, Tanisra, just a kind of wonderful team of teachers, and they were both uh, 
um, monastics in the Ajahn Chah tradition before they took the robes off. And he writes, in relationship to that uh, term or phrase I use, building a, of the temple of awareness. And so these ten qualities, when they come together, they really stabilize our life, not just for our meditation purposes, but all day long. You know, when we're, when generosity and deep resonant valuing of non-harming and the ability to let go of what needs to be let go of and the ability of wisdom to keep things radically simple, just the natural process of body and mind, things being known and not adding, not complicating, and all these other parmies, right? Maybe you sense that at the end of the guided meditation, like, oh, this would be a good way to live my life. You know, the quality of my mind and heart right now, I wish this is the quality of heart and mind I had when I was in the middle of that difficult interaction, or at this point, or at that point. Because it really, it's, it's, the whole point is that it's meant to be pragmatic, actually work. So those who came in late, you maybe didn't get it, so I'm just putting the, the link out in the chat again. So anyway, what he writes there in the foreword to the book, most of us frequently experience the feeling of being swept away. These powerful teachings enable us in moments to emerge from the floods, from the flood into the ever-present brightness and stability of the unobstructed heart. The Ten Perfections offer a spirituality that is holistic. The Buddhist teachings envisions well-being on many levels, within and without. In today's world, filled with so much inequity, injustice, suffering, and conflict, these human virtues remind us that we are not isolated beings. We live in a relational field. And the realization of true peace is not just about letting go of the world, but rather living mindfully, remembering and healing the world. And that's the nice thing to remember with these qualities. They're all about how we relate. And there's really no difference between how I'm relating to my body, how I'm relating to the ache in my back, how I'm relating to the anxiety in my heart, and how I'm relating to everything else that's happening in the world. So we often talk about our body as a kind of training ground or working ground. And one of the things we do with this working ground or training ground is we develop, we recognize, and then we develop these qualities of heart. And developing them means that when they're weak, like instead of being generous in a moment, I'm feeling, because of habit, to be stingy, to hold back in some way, then the way we developed generosity is even though it's not the stronger habit in the mind in that moment, I choose to be generous instead of following the well-worn, better-greased pathway of being stingy. That's how we grow each of these ten qualities. We're in that dynamic present moment where we see the possibility of relating with kindness, but we feel the aversion being stronger and that gravitational pull to being irritated, right? 
but we know how to just feel the impulse toward aversion without becoming the one who's averse. And in that moment of not acting out the aversion, well, that's kindness is already there. Like just being kind and how we relate to the impulse to be irritated. You see? So it's really a choice that's being made. There's a, I can't replicate it now, but some of you will remember, there's a, a wonderful story, teaching story that comes evidently from the native indigenous people here from this land. And, uh, and the sort of end of the story, a grandfather talking to his grandson about two wolves, um, one that is really wise and takes care of everybody, and the other wolves just sort of burns everything down, eats everything up. And the grandson appropriately asks, like, how do we know which one wins? <laughs> and the grandfather's answer is something like, well, it depends which one you feed. Right? So which, which qualities of heart are we feeding? And the thing is, we're feeding qualities mostly unconsciously because they're the habit with the most momentum. And because we're not, we don't have that mindful awareness, that stability, present moment awareness, then in a way we're on autopilot. We just are following the habits that have the most momentum to be stingy, to be complex instead of wise, you know, to hold on instead of letting go being irritated instead of being kind, being wishy-washy instead of being resolute about what we know is useful and good. I mean, how many times, just speaking from my own experience now, this is true for me, like how many times in one day do I have that clear sense that I should resolve, you know what, Mark, you've eaten enough, you don't need that second bowl. So I feel that impulse to be resolute, but I go, yeah, but <laughs> what, what's so harmful about another? And it's not like it's sort of a make or break moment in my life, but it's all these little moments where we choose not to hear the quiet voice of these 10 wholesome qualities and just instead allow the mind to follow more deeper, well-greased grooves to the, you know, so-called opposite qualities of mind, the less trustworthy, less helpful qualities of mind. One of the better-known passages from the Buddhist teachings is um, something like, this is a paraphrase, there's no worse enemy than an untrained, untamed mind. So this is what I was talking about in terms of living a life <clears throat> where whatever habit energy has the most energy in that moment, that's what we do, that's how we act, that's how we relate to, to things in the moment. And the Buddha says, even your worst enemy can't harm you as much as an untrained mind. That's sort of interesting. And, and you know, when we look around at the terrible things 
that befall the world and our lives, it's really this truth of, you know, there is nothing so dangerous as an untrained mind. Because when the appropriate supporting conditions are there, people, human beings, you and me, we can be beastly. We can be really, um, I mean, we can do pretty much anything we can imagine has been done, probably will be done again in terms of violence and betrayal and greed and allowing people to suffer when we could do something to alleviate their suffering. And then the second part, the positive part, even wholesome parents, so imagine the most wholesome parents can't help you as much as a well-trained mind. And this is really the beginning of practice. Some of you know another well-known phrase from the Buddhist teachings, you know, abandon what is unskillful, cultivate the good, and then purify the heart. And this is this temple of awareness that um, Ajahn Sushito, this British monk um, who wrote one of the books that I have linked to, he talks about, um, you know, if, if we're going to uh, take care of everything, we need this stability, we need this temple of awareness. That's how we take care of ourselves. And the deeper insights, the insights that the Buddha points to, that we're all <clears throat> capable of realizing, they require this stability of awareness. It's like the metaphor the Buddha uses is the floods, the floods of the mind, the outflows, the Pali word is asawa. So the flood of thinking that some sense experience, some nice sense experience is going to take care of me. Or the flood, like my mind can get flooded with that, like just give me some chocolate, get me lunch, and I'll be okay. You know, if I just get my house paid off, if I just, so this promise, some sense experience, if I have it, then things will be okay. And the next flood, in these four floods, sometimes described as three floods, sometimes as four, is the flood of becoming. If I can just become this kind of person, we even do this with our Buddhist practice, if I can just become a good meditator, then my problems will be done. If I could just get a little calm, a little samadhi, if I could just finish reading this book, <laughs> you know, or if I could only understand what Mark is talking about, then. So these are becoming ideas. And we can obsess and forever get involved in a becoming. And even when we realize one becoming, you know, if I could only grow up, and then finally we grow up. And then we realize, oh, now I don't want to be old. You know, if only, and it's just another becoming. If only I could become more youthful, less old, less ossified. Then, then, and on and on. So we're flooded by our sense desires, we're flooded by ideas of becoming somebody, we're flooded by our self-centered views, thinking in self-centered ways. 
and that's often linked to the uh, the flood of ignorance, not seeing clearly or thinking we already know, but being deluded. And so sometimes it's just the flood of ignorance and sometimes it's separated out self-view, fixed view, and ignorance. And those are the four floods. So these ten qualities are really create the foundation for crossing life's floods. That's why it's the subtitle for Ajahn Sushito's books, Ways to Cross Life's Floods. And th these four floods, this is just a description of an ordinary human being. That means you and me, most of the time, were flooded, like if we had some way of looking at each other's mental activity, we'd see the flood of thinking about sense desire and thinking that some sense experience is going to make me happy or becoming somebody and that's going to fix me or make me happy or obsessing thinking about some self-centered view or stance or opinion or some fixed view what whatever that might be or just the flood of thinking I know enough already I don't really need to pay attention I don't need to be curious there's really nothing to wake up to. Right? Thinking we already know. That's a flood, isn't it? <laughs> That's, in a way, the foundational flood is like justifying a lack of humility and curiosity. And that's, you know, and that's why we can get interested in chocolate. <laughs> Not that chocolate's bad. I like chocolate, which is why I bring it up. But, you know, Thinking that chocolate, the pleasantness of eating chocolate is more than it is, that is an expression of that flood of ignorance. Like I can afford to indulge all these things that ultimately don't matter much because what else am I going to do with my human life? And that profound lack of curiosity, it's really a lack of vision of what's possible for a human being. And we, we may not like, like in the Buddhist tradition and other spiritual traditions, how they kind of make like the Buddha a special deal, you know, this person and what this person did. But it's, the, you know, in the best sense, they're trying to shock us out of just getting by in life and, and this failure of imagination of what might be possible for our heart and mind, what we can actually do, even while we raise our kids and go to work and, and deal with the problems that need to be dealt with in our personal lives and in our wider world. All of that work of living can be done, can actually be in the service of awakening. So it's not like um, we have to make a choice, which it sometimes seems. It's just really a matter of the context. You know, the context of showing up at work is to develop the paramis. Because it's these 10 or whatever, you know, wholesome qualities that you're working with. They create the foundation or the ground that we can actually observe the floods. We need the wholesomeness, the ground of wholesomeness, to see and feel the impulse to sense desire, to feel the impulse to becoming to feel the impulse to solidify around a fixed view, a self-view, self-centered view, and to fix around that idea that 
I already know what needs to be known. I, I get life. I know what's important. This profound lack of curiosity and humility. But when we have that stability that comes from cultivating these wholesome qualities, we really, because it, uh, there's a inner pleasure and an inner fullness, like a non-fragmentation. This is the interesting thing. You can actually remember that word, uh, either fullness or wholeness, because it can be helpful as you're getting to know these ten qualities of generosity, morality, this non-harming, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And please memorize this lesson. If you want to, you know, if you're a rebel and you want to come up with your own list of wholesome qualities of mind, fine, memorize that one. But come up with a list of trustworthy, wholesome qualities and remember them so you can bring them to mind. We're really watering them with intention, with attention. And and we really want to um, see how when I'm cultivating it, when I remember it, and then have the chance to cultivate it, which, remember, the cultivation, the gathering, as Ajahn Sushito says, happens when we feel the impulse to go the other way, but because we're bringing one of the paramis to mind, like our resonant commitment to truthfulness, wanting to see the truth, wanting to speak the truth, wanting to align with the truth of things, right? And we see the habit of, oh, I can just be a little spare with the truth here. You know, I'm going to spin it a little bit. It's kind of true. I'm not outright lying, but I'm sort of holding back part of the truth in order to manipulate the situation, right? So we feel that impulse to do what we would ordinarily do, ordinarily do, but now it's bumping up against our commitment, our valuing of truthfulness. And that tension, and the way we strengthen it is, even though the, it would be easier just to kind of do what we always do, we choose instead to go against the grain, against the stream, and we um, align with our valuing of truthfulness. And we feel the rub, right? Because the habit energy wants to go another way, but we're sticking with it. I'll give you a simple example of this. Um, this is in the late 80s. I was uh, living at a, a practice place in Manhattan. It's called the Integral Yoga Institute, uh, started by Swami Satchidananda. He was sort of a famous Indian man who came to the States in the 60s. He did the peace invocation at Woodstock, so you see him sometimes in those old videos. Um, and he was a really impressive, uh, uh, in the yogic mystical tradition, not in Buddhist tradition. But I was living at that center and teaching meditation and yoga and helping to run. And it was kind of a big operation. It was a big, uh, it's still there in the West Village, um, natural food store and bookstore. And then we had like five classrooms where there was breathing practices and yoga practices and meditation practices and a bunch of other sort of uh, related practices. And I was there for a couple of years. 
And they had this deal. They had a centers around the country. And that was back in the day where you had to pay for long distance calls. And uh, they had this deal like they didn't want to make a, a long distance call unless they knew the person they wanted to talk to was available. So they would do, uh, um, you know, where you get the operator and the operator calls and asks for a person. And they basically were involved in a little lie, which is, you know, that I forget what the code was, but if the person wasn't available, you know, you'd, you'd say that and then the operator would tell you and then you wouldn't have to pay for anything. But the person was available, they would say something else. And uh, then um, the operator, uh, uh, and then you'd, you'd uh, I forget exactly, you'd hang up, you, you wouldn't take the call, and then you would just call them because you knew the person was available. The, the point of the story, if it doesn't make sense, is that there was some deceit. And because I was working there, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel comfortable with it. And it was just because I didn't feel, I felt like I was, you know, what I was doing would be manipulating this operator, like not being straight with this person in order to save some money for the organization. And uh, so it's just like one of those simple moments of feeling that choice, you know, and it was, these were people, uh, the people who ran the place. I really respected them. They're, you know, I, I still respect them. I think they're great spiritual beings and teachers, wise folks. Um, but I didn't feel good about this particular practice in the organization. And I said so. And so that was like rubbing up. It would have been so much easier just to do what everybody else was doing. Right. And just all these little ways we cheat or take advantage or don't play by the rules and we justify it. And it's just good to notice like, oh, I could have a more truthful relationship with that person or that organization or this system. Why am I manipulating? Does this feel right in the heart? And that's how we gather. That's how we build the strength. So initially we're just uh, knowing there are wholesome qualities and we're memorizing so we know what to call upon. And like I said, for those of you who are more devotional, you know, you can think of this as as calling out for the beneficent, powerful, saintly forces of the universe, even though they're just these capacity or potentials in our own heart. But there isn't really an outside and an inside. So these wholesome, like this capacity to be truthful or to be generous or to be kind or to be balanced or any of these 10, they're like um, human potentials. And in a way, the, the humans before us that have really mastered or developed and turned some of these beautiful qualities of the heart into superpowers, in a way that is also available to us, right? We can use, like when we see a really, another person who we admire in, the, in a particular quality in that person, we can, in a way, sympathetically align with that wholesome quality. Maybe that person is really, has a capacity of resoluteness or de determination, or this person can really persist, really hang in there. Or this person really understands the trust of patience. Or has a really sharp, wise understanding. Right? So we, 
And we want to, like when we recognize a wholesome quality in another human being, we want to remember that I wouldn't recognize how beautiful, wholesome, powerful that quality was unless somehow I understood that that's beautiful, wholesome, and powerful. Where is the understanding? It's not in the other person right now. It's in my own heart. I understand. I appreciate. I admire. So, you know, when we have, let's say, a, an admired teacher, or there's somebody who you just think is a saint, a really powerful saint, it's not so much in the other person. You're recognizing whatever beautiful quality. And it's really important to create that conduit from what you imagine is out there, that the seed or the potential is right here. Even that's how we use the Buddha. Obviously, lived 2,500 years ago, was a human being. Seems like a pretty impressive human being, right? Certainly that's... But pragmatically, I really hold that person up. In a way, it's it's an idea, that a useful pragmatic idea of the Buddha, of this awakened being. And then that idea, that symbol in my heart, can then hold all of my own experience of the potential of goodness in my own heart. Like we sense the seed, like we've sensed moments where we've been kind or we've been generous or we've been wise or we've been resolute, we've been patient, we've been balanced with equanimity, right? And we see it as a seed and then we want to, uh, this is a wholesome way to use imagination, right? We have these mythic ideas of someone like the Buddha or the Dalai Lama or, you know, whoever, teachers you haven't really gotten to see or just human beings like yourself so you can imagine that they're special because it's useful to have this way of creating an aspiration of what is possible we just have to remember that it's here the growth we're interested in is here the potential is here it doesn't matter that the Buddha had I mean, it matters that the Buddha had his awakening. But now, what matters is that, that how can that awakening be useful here so that I can live in a way that is more useful for my own well-being and for the well-being of others. So we want to start by just knowing the potential. And then once we're we're inspired enough to do the work, then there's this middle phase that Ajahn Sushito talks about. He calls it gathering, cultivating, developing, reflecting, keeping it in mind, and in particular looking for those moments of choice where we could go in a less wholesome direction, but we go against the grain and we cultivate what's wholesome, and we build the power of the parami. And you know, as the you know the mythology or the stories in early Buddhism, the Buddha before he was a Buddha, incalculable lifetimes before he was this seeker called Sumedho. That was his name. You know, and they talk about time in like this unfathomable way, like how many lifetimes the Buddha lived. But way back then, many many 
incalculable eons before his birth 2,500 years ago, there was another awakened being. Dipankara was that person's name, evidently, as the story goes. And Ajahn Sumedho, as a spiritual seeker, met, got a chance to meet this Buddha, the previous one of the previous Buddhas, and he was really so impressed by all these beautiful paramis and the capacity of that teacher, that Buddha, to teach in ways that really benefited others. And he had this aspiration, I want to be able to take care of all beings in that way. That's a beautiful thing to do with the human life. So the story is that incalculable lifetimes he developed all these ten paramis, so that in his final birth, 2,500 years ago, he had all these inclinations already, these so-called personality tendencies to be deeply wise, to be deeply generous, to be deeply resolute, to be deeply persistent, to be deeply patient, to be deeply truthful, to be deeply kind and balanced and whatever, able to renounce, to have sila, this deep commitment to non-harming, right? And then so that awakening took place within a personality that had developed all of these qualities. So one of the you know, definitions in the tradition of a Buddha is somebody who not only has the full awakening, because a lot of people evidently have woken up, have become fully awakened beings from the time of the Buddha on. But what makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they have a personality that makes them a very effective teacher. And it really makes sense because those teachings are still resonating 2,600 years later as like functional, useful teachings, even though obviously the culture has changed. We're in a different time and place, and yet the way the Buddha articulated his own awakening, shared it, still resonates today, still we can use today. Now, it's not perfect, but uh, it's still available. And so this is, uh, you know, this is actually in early Buddhism, this is what the Bodhisattva path is all about, is developing the paramis to be on the way to awakening. That's what Bodhisattva means, to be on the way to awakening. And then, like I mentioned, the later traditions, it really got uh, entwined with this beautiful motivation to awaken for the benefit of all to live in a way that supports all beings. Because self-centered motivation doesn't really work as we develop our spiritual practice. It has to go beyond. It doesn't mean we abandon wanting to take care of ourselves. It just means that this idea that we have to make a choice between taking care of ourselves and taking care of the world, that's another one of those failures of imagination, that somehow there's a choice. Because it can seem that way when we have a limited, more animal nature view of things. It's like me or you. But is that really true? Is there a way for us to show up in the moment that is healing and enlivening here and healing and enlivening there? And that's what we see, like uh, that quote that I read from Kitasaro. You know, 
to really see that we're, like it or not, we're in a relational world. That who we are, what we are, is this way of relating. That's what we're healing. The awakening process, the spiritual process, is purifying how the heart is relating from an ignorant, self-centered way of relating with greed and hatred and disconnection, delusion, to beyond that, or abandoning that, those ways. So we'll finish in just a moment, but I just want to mention for those who can stay for the small groups, and for all of you who can't stay, please look for ways to have this conversation, could be even with yourself through some journaling or just reflection, but uh, in particular, looking for ways that you can make that choice of going against habit energy toward what is wholesome, refraining <clears throat> from habits that are less than wholesome. And then when you do that enough, then the other thing you might share in today's group, maybe there are some qualities that already have some real power in your personality. Or you could even share somebody you know, a friend, for example, that has one of these qualities pretty well developed and you sense and admire in that person that quality as a kind of superpower that that person can really count on. That quality of their heart is really protecting them and others. Because it really helps to name this. I mean, that would be a great thing for a group of friends to do once a month to look at each other. They, they've actually ritualized this in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, watering flowers, I think they call it, where they sit around in the community of monks and nuns and lay people who are living at the monasteries, and they water flowers. So they stand up and they'll say nice things, they'll name some of the nice qualities they see in another person. It's really a wonderful thing. So you can share this in the small group if you stay, or just find ways to keep the wholesome qualities in mind and to water those flowers. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.